Church, if you'll take God's word this morning and turn to the last book within that treasure you have in your hands today, known as the word of God, over the next two weeks, we get to know the joy of worshiping in and through the pages of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. As you make your way there, as you do so, if you'll go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes, let's ask for the Lord's kindness in this time. If anything is to be accomplished, it will be because he sees fit to make it so. So we want to express that dependency upon him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the sound, sound truth that we just sang of. You are our God who, are, is in, who sits enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things today. Lord, we would be remiss if we were not quick to simply ask and confess, asking for your mercy where we live our lives on this planet with not the regard for your enthronement as we should. We are not as overwhelmed as we ought to be, and Lord, we pray that you would rectify that this morning as you bring your word to bear in our lives, our hearts, and our minds. Lord, we ask that you would astound us with the glory that belongs only to yourself. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, and I trust you are, the main idea of Revelation 4, 1 through 11, if you give a summation in one sentence of the entire chapter, it would be this, all things, and wrap your minds around that for a moment, all things are governed by the Holy One who sits enthroned in heaven. Now, North Lake, the Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times, but Yet nowhere else in all of Scripture, there's no other passage which is more complete and more informative about this place that we each long for than Revelation 4. So brothers and sisters, I, in this, that spirit, I trust you realize what a precious gift this breathtaking glimpse of his very throne room is today. God, by his grace, has given you this glimpse, and we have to ask, Why? Well, not to overcomplicate things this morning, that's because you and I need this glimpse of heaven. You and I desperately need to see the throne, and more importantly, friends, we need to see the one who is on the throne. And then we need to live our lives from the vantage point of heaven. I mean, when you think about it, our need for this text really isn't that much different from the need of the seven churches to which John originally wrote. We know from what Jesus said to them in the seven letters of chapters 2 through 3 that they had obviously lost their first love in Ephesus. They were about to be killed for their faith in Smyrna. They were tempted by a false teaching in Pergamum, and they were tolerating a false prophetess in Thyatira, someone who was leading them into all sorts of sexual morality and idolatry. The church was dead in Sardis, persecuted in Philadelphia, and lukewarm in Laodicea. And yet many of you would say this morning, well, wait, I confess, as I read Revelation 2 through 3, I'll be honest, I can see a little bit of myself in each one of those people. Even though there be 2,000 years that separate I from them, the intersectionality that exists between their life and my own is undeniable. And that's because the things that they struggle with are common to all men. As Solomon said, indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. And so perhaps your spiritual state today matches one of their situations. Perhaps the things of God have begun to lose their luster. Maybe you are struggling with the trial that's in front of you. Perhaps you find yourself more interested in and engaged by sinful pleasures than the things of God. Christians, in all of these instances, it's what is it that you need? Well, you need to see God as John describes him here 
in Revelation 4, 1 through 11. You and I need the words of this passage to reach out of the page and grip our hearts with the very glory of God. And make no mistake about it, this is a text that literally throbs with the majesty and power of God. If you'll read with me this morning, verse 1, chapter 4. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, notice this next line, to him who lives forever the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. That's a lot there. After writing about his vision of the glorified Son of Man in chapter 1, and after dictating Christ's present assessment of his bride in chapters 2 and 3, John looks and beholds yet another vision. This time it consists of a door standing open in heaven. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Revelations, there should be a bit of irony that strikes you at chapter 4, verse 1. Anyone remember Christ's last letter to his church that immediately precedes this very chapter? Look at chapter 3 for a moment. It's interesting to observe that Jesus there was standing at the door of the church of Laodicea and he is knocking. And now here in chapter 4 verse 1, John writes that he beheld a door standing open to heaven. Here's the irony. Evidently, it seems that the door of the church of Laodicea was closed to Jesus, while the door of heaven was thrown wide open for the Apostle John. Why? It's because God is not done giving the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant. And so he proceeds. All of a sudden, as if these wide open doors into heaven is not amazing enough, someone begins to speak from the door. And the voice of the one speaking, John writes, was like the sound of a trumpet. Now, we have to ask as good students of the Bible, who is this speaking? Well, if this verse sounds familiar to you, it should. This is the same voice that John heard back in chapter 1. Look back there for a moment. Turn to the left in chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10. He hears this voice for the first time. And then when he receives this exalted view of the Son of Man in verses 9 through 18, you'll remember who this one, what, he, what is it is that he does. 
in verse 17, this voice now speaking in chapter 4 is none other than the booming, authoritative voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Pay attention to verse 17. John, in his response to what he's seen, he falls on his face as a dead man. Jesus Christ reaches out, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. This one that John had witnessed crucified on a cross some decades prior. I am the living one and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, what's the implication here? The door is open, someone begins to speak, and this voice is none other than Jesus Christ. Here's the implication. When this voice speaks, you stop what you're doing, and you snap to attention, which is exactly what John does. Because this voice wastes no time in exchanging pleasantries with John. There's not, John, how are you doing today? I trust you're well. How's the island of Patmos? There's none of that. He simply says, come up here. And I will show you the things which must take place after these things. Now, friends, whenever you see that phrase, after these things, you know it's a massive turning point to the whole entire book. You have to realize this morning that all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation is divided up into three main sections. And they're outlined for you in chapter 1, verse 19. If you look at chapter 1, verse 19, it's there that this son of man tells John, John, I want you to write the things which are. I want you to speak and dictate down what you've seen of the exalted son of man in chapter 1, verse 9 through 18. And then, John, I also want you to write the things that are, which is my assessment of my bride, chapters 2 and 3. But he also says, John, finally, I want you to write the things which will take place after these things. Everything else that's yet to come in the future. And Christians, the rest of Revelation from here on out represents this final section of redemptive history. And it as well is divided up into three equal sections. You have the tribulation period between chapters 6 through 19. You have Christ's millennial kingdom in chapter 20. And you have that eternal state in chapters 21 through 22. I want you to also notice, friends, something about verse 1 here, because these are the events, notice what John writes, which must take place after these things. Meaning these predictions by God are not given to satisfy your curiosity. These events are part of the fixed will of a great God. These are the things which must take place. Which is a reminder to all of us that God is not only in control, but he's working out his very plan, every minutia, every bit of detail, down to the tiniest piece. This plan that he drafted before the foundation of the world. So that the events in chapter 6 and following of this book, Christians, these are not just probable predictions. These are absolutely certain to happen. And chapter 4 and chapter 5 really serve as the prologue for everything which must take place after these things. Now, we pause here before we dive into verse 2. Take a pastoral pause for a moment and simply ask, why would God give John a glimpse into his heaven before showing him the things which must take place after these things? Why is that important or why is that significant? Well, friends, you have to keep in mind what it is that John is about to see. What he's about to see is terrifying. Take every one of your nightmares that you have ever had, coupled with every nightmare that you ever will have, and combine them all into one, and the horrifying scene that John is about to witness makes all of your nightmares seem pedestrian at best. Because this next major section of Revelation is going to be the opening of the seven-sealed scroll that we will observe next Sunday in Revelation chapter 5. The picture is one of a scroll sealed up with seven seals, and as each seal is broken by the Lamb and Redeemer, 
who is seen standing before the throne. Each broken seal will bring wave after wave after wave of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And so no wonder John was given this otherworldly look into heaven. It was necessary for him to be given a glimpse of the throne in heaven before witnessing the terrible judgments about to be poured out on the earth. Why? It's because he needed to have and maintain a heavenly perspective about the earthly events that would soon come. Before the sound of seals began meeting his ears, God needed to walk him through the door of heaven and remind him and assure him where and from whom these events are going to come from. And so Christ says, come up here. Once in heaven, evidently John was immediately taken out of our own realm of time and space, ushered into heaven, the heaven of God's presence. He was in the spirit. And once in heaven, John proceeds to describe what he saw there. At the very center of this realm of indescribable beauty, John sees a throne standing. Now, friends, this is not an ordinary piece of furniture. Throughout the whole of Scripture, the throne was a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority over the universe, over everything that he had made. And the fact that the throne was said to be standing, not to be missed there, meant that God's sovereign rule was fixed and unshakable. Which, friends, is a far cry from what the foolish individuals that you are surrounded by day to day will tell you. You know those individuals from Romans chapter 1 who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. They will tell you that the universe is being governed by a mindless force of random chance. That's not what we see here. God has complete and permanent control of his universe. His throne is standing. Now, do you think a standing throne would have been a comfort to John? Think about his situation on the island of Patmos, exiled. You think this standing throne should be of comfort to us now? Absolutely. Before one turns to the horrific end-time events about to be revealed in chapter 6, God wants the eyes of his people fixed on his throne. Which is not only why he makes such a big deal of it in this chapter, but also why the book of Revelation is often called the throne book. God's throne is mentioned a whopping 45 times in the book of Revelation, compared to only 15 other instances in all of the New Testament. To put this in perspective, God's throne is mentioned 11 times alone here in this given chapter. Which is why we said the main idea is this. All things are governed by the Holy One who sits enthroned in heaven. Every feature of this chapter that we're now about to unpack is outlined based on its relationship to this throne. First, we will note the person seated on it. Look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now we know full well from verse 8, if you move your eyes down, that he who sits on this throne, we know this person, because the four living creatures constantly sing to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Friends, this is God the Father who is the one sitting. It's the very creator of the world, the very world that's about to be judged for its rebellion against him. And he's sitting. That's a present participle. What does that mean? This is continuous occupancy. Here's the implication of this sitting. No matter what is going to happen on the earth, and may this be an encouragement to you this morning, no matter what happens... Our God is sitting on the throne, and he's not getting up. Amen? He is sitting. 
He's not relinquishing control. There he permanently sits, signifying not just his sovereign rule over the entire universe, but also his right to exercise judgment upon it. This much is underscored with John's further description of God the Father in verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Which is a very similar description of that same blazing fire we see in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 of his book. Now there really is no possible human way to describe what God is like. And so John can only use comparisons. So he begins by saying he's like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. Modern day jasper is opaque, but the key to identifying this type of stone is in Revelation 21.11. Feel free to fly forward there. Revelation 21.11, this is a description where John is writing about the holy city Jerusalem. And it's coming down of heaven, having the glory of God with it. And notice how he describes her brilliance. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Evidently, this stone must have been a clear rock-like crystal. Think not unlike a diamond that we know today. God's holiness is so glorious and so pronounced and so brilliant, it can only be likened to a diamond that's brilliantly refracting all of the colors of the spectrum and emanating them out from this very throne. God's holiness is magnificent before John. Now, not to be lost against the backdrop of this manifested greatness and holiness is the fact that God's appearance is also like a sardius. Sardius is from which the city Sardis, earlier in chapters 2 and 3, get its name. It was a blood-red ruby, and thus symbolized the way God's violent but perfect justice was raging against sin. So Sardius was an undeniably appropriate comparison for what is about to be carried out from this throne. Hopefully everyone this morning can see what John is attempting to describe here. As he looks towards the throne, the overall picture resting in his eyes is that God's holy character is reacting with wrath to man's ongoing rebellion and sinfulness. A reaction that's mounting and brewing and building out from the throne and is about to produce the very wrath that's about to strike the earth in the forthcoming chapters. And the only way John can describe what he sees is by saying, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. This was the holy God, and he was raging on. He is not happy. And while he is not happy, the irony is that John resided upon a planet who was presently slumbering, lying unaware of how God was about to and is about to strike them down. Church, that's still true today, is it not? You go to work, you have neighbors, you have friends and family who lie unaware that they presently reside under the wrath of God. We move on to the end of verse 3, and we note not just the person seated on the throne, but this picture connected with the throne. And what we'll notice is that with our gaze on him who sits on the throne, we will note everything from what's around the throne and coming out of the throne and even before the throne. Look at verse 3. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance, meaning the shades that shades of green were the dominant colors of this rainbow. Now, Northlake, what is it that one thinks of when you think about a rainbow or see one stretched across the sky? Not to spend too much time here, but this is the month of June. And our lost, secularized, God-hating culture takes a whole devoted month to celebrate and revel in a form of sexual orientation and lifestyle that is absolutely 
rebellious against everything of God's design, and they have great pride in it. That is not what we think of as believers when we think of a rainbow. Ever since the post-flood life of Genesis 9, rainbows for us now constantly remind us of the faithfulness of God. They're giant banners across the sky which are literally screaming to us of God's mercy and grace. And unlike the natural phenomenon of earthly rainbows, of which we only get to see a small part, this rainbow is different. This heavenly rainbow completely encircles the throne of God, thus emphasizing the completeness of His faithfulness. Another double portion of irony here is that for you and I, we get to see rainbows typically after the storm. For John, this was a rainbow that he got to saw see before the storm of chapter 6 and following. And so what an amazing gesture to be stretched around the throne, no? As the storm of God's judgment brews across the horizon and terrifying flashes increases in frequency, here you have this rainbow that provides a comforting reminder and comforting balance to the brewing judgment that's about to emanate out from the throne that John will see in chapter 6. Friends, this is reminding you and I today that God's wrath never operates at the expense of his faithfulness. His judgments never revoke or repeal his promises that our God will, will, will preserve a people for himself and do so until the end. That's not all that's around the throne. Besides this rainbow, there are 24 thrones positioned with 24 elders sitting on the thrones. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, Northlake, the long-debated question is, who are these elders and who do they represent? In regards to their identity, there are really two common suggestions espoused. One, these are either angelic beings... Or two, these are a group of redeemed human beings, either representing Israel, the church, or both. It's best to view these elders as, for me, as I've looked at it, as human representatives of the church. And several lines of evidence point to that conclusion. For starters, throughout scripture, angels are never seen numbered, crowned or enthroned, and yet here, that is exactly how John describes these individuals. There are 24 of them. There yet lies the fact that they're also sitting on their respective lesser thrones, which implies that they will have rule and reign with Christ, but nowhere in Scripture are angels pictured as ruling and reigning. But the church is a different story. The church has repeatedly promised a co-regency with Christ himself. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 for a moment. This is to Christ's letter to the church of Thyatira. He writes, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. You move over to Revelation 5, verse 10, that we'll see next week. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Fast forward to Revelation 20, verse 4. It's really the manifestation and fulfillment of 2 Timothy 2, 12, that if you endure, you will reign with him, and if you deny him, he will deny you. As John writes, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These 24 elders are sitting on thrones. On top of this, they're clothed in white garments. Now, yes, angels are seen in Scripture in white throughout the Bible. 
When you look at the book of Revelation, white attire is usually referring to the dress of believers. You'll recall that Christ promised the believers at Sardis that they would be clothed in white garments. Chapter 3, verse 5. He advised the apostate Laodiceans to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Later on at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, his bride will clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Friends, white garments routinely represented Christ's righteousness imputed to believers at salvation. Not to say anything of the fact that these elders are also seen with golden crowns on their heads. Stephanos, the victor's crown. The crown rewarded to every believer who heeds Christ's message in the seven letters to overcome. And nowhere in scripture are crowns ever promised to angels. Nor do we ever see angels wearing them. And that's because angels never personally struggle with and triumph over sin. There's no need for a victor's crown. When you take all of this together, and since redeemed Israel will not be resurrected until the second coming of Christ, at the conclusion of the tribulation, these 24 elders represent the raptured, glorified church, the same ones who will sing that song of redemption in Revelation 5, verse 8, that we will note next Sunday. Also of note is that the number 24, much like the number 7, is a number of completion in the Bible. What is God saying here? Well, like the rainbow, 24 elders also further signifies the faithfulness of God to redeem the whole of his elected people and bring them safely home. They will receive their crowns and live in that place that Christ promised to prepare for them in John chapter 14. We move, for, move further still to verse 5, not only around the throne, these 24 elders, but you have out of verse 5 coming out from the throne flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. This is all coming out from the throne. This is the preview of the coming storm of Revelation chapter 6 of that divine wrath that's a, that will be unleashed upon the sinful world. This is a throne of judgment which is only further evidenced in the additional places that we see this exact description later in the book of Revelation. If you look at Revelation 8, 5, it reads the following, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals and thunders and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Revelation eleven nineteen, And the temple of God which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Even later, in Revelation 16, 18, where the seventh angel pours out his bowl of judgment, there will be flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Church, this is a breathtaking and an awe-inspiring picture to be sure, but make no mistake about it, it's also a terrifying one. We live in a world today that does not like to think of God as a God of judgment. They prefer to look at the rainbow around the throne, but they ignore the lightning and the thunder. Or our God this morning, just as we sang of a moment ago, he is a God of grace. And praise God for that, amen? He is a God of grace, but it's grace that also reigns through righteousness. And this much we saw manifested through none other than the cross itself, where God, our God, manifested his perfect, unrivaled love for sinners, while still his wrath raged on against sin and ultimately upon the shoulders of his son on our behalf. This is the scene coming out from the throne. We also know later in verse 5 as we proceed on, there's something coming 
and surrounding before the throne. Coming out before the throne, there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is yet another picture of the wrath of God. Friends, these seven lamps of light are not calm, soft lights. These are war torches. These are torches that emit a blazing, inescapable, fierce light and are being used to be carried into battle. And John says these seven torches are the Holy Spirit. God is ready to make war on the rebellious and the Holy Spirit is his war torch. Here's the irony here. The one promised as the comforter to the ones who would accept Christ as Lord and Savior here in this instance will become the consumer of those who reject him. He is entering into battle. And that battle is about to ensue in chapter 6. John needed to be seen and shown the throne of God's divine glory in preparation for what he was about to see. This whole picture of the throne is one in which the creator is about to launch this massive program to purify his creation. This is the elaborate picture connected to the throne. And not to be forgotten in all of this, well, we have to ask, well, what about the four living creatures of verse 6? Who do they represent? This leads us to our last and final point. And that is the praise directed to the throne. You have in verse 6, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Church, this is eerily similar to Isaiah and Ezekiel's vision into heaven themselves. And both John and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they all struggled to make sense of this spectacular and supernatural scene that they had witnessed. Unfortunately, some individuals like to get cute at this juncture and identify these living beings as being representative of everything from the four gospels to certain attributes of God. But neither of those positions are taking into account the whole counsel of God. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15, we see that these four living creatures creatures are identified as cherubim, which is an exalted order of angels that are typically associated in Scripture with God's blazing holy power. This interpretation is only strengthened here in Revelation 4 when you note that these living beings are in the center of the thrones. They're the only ones able to be this close to God. The scene is even more overwhelming when you take into account that these four living creatures are full of eyes in front and behind, symbolizing their constant awareness and comprehensive knowledge that they possess, but notice their response. From Ezekiel's description of these angels, each one for him possessed all four of these facial features, but from John's vantage point, it looked a bit different, but not a discrepancy nonetheless. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature like, had the face like the son of man, and the fourth creature like a flying eagle. Together, all four of these living beings really represent everything within the created world from the perspective of greatest nobility, strength, wisdom, and speed. And throughout the Bible, we see that these living beings, these cherubim, these angels, really have two main roles, judgment and worship. As one makes their way through the rest of Revelation, you'll see each of these four living living creatures again. 
Each of them will play a vital role in the coming judgments upon the earth. In chapter 6, verse 1, they, they will be there at the outset of the divine judgments as one of their number calls forth the rider on a white horse. In chapter 6, verse 6, another is going to declare and decree economic disaster upon the earth. Later in chapter 15, verse 7, another will give the seven angels involved in the bowl judgments, each the respective bowls. No doubt they are involved in the judgment that's about to come. But not to be missed, they're also involved in worship simultaneously. We know from Isaiah 6 that each of these their six wings denotes really for these cherubim their supreme and responsibility and privilege that they have to be a, a, peop, a being, a group of created beings that are in constant worship of this God, our God. They use two wings to cover their faces because not even an exalted created order of angels is able to look at the unveiled glory of God without being consumed. They use two wings to cover their feet because the place where they are is indeed holy ground. And still they use two other wings to fly around in constant service to God. Worship for these beings was the unending privilege and permanent occupation of these angels. Well, let's look at the worship that they render, shall we? As John writes, day and night, they do not cease to say... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Their constant focus is on three aspects of God's character. His holiness, His omnipotence, and His eternality. He is absolutely untamed by evil, error, and wrongdoing. He is not bound by the realms of time and space. He has no beginning and He has no end. He is utterly devoid of any weakness. What's the implication here? If he's devoid of any and all weakness, friends, no one can oppose him. No one can question him. He can effortlessly do whatever his holy purposes will for him to do. If that means judging the earth, if that means purifying his creation, redeeming it, and making it new, he need but speak it, and it come to pass. It's as the psalmist says in Psalm 115.3, Our God, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. You'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar, good old arrogant Nebuchadnezzar. You'll recall that when he's eventually snatched down from his perch of arrogance, he acknowledges this, doesn't he? In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, he gets it. He, God, does according to his will in the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And that will be equally true in the end. For those whose judgment falls upon their shoulders as the wrath of the Lamb comes and enters the scene. And we move our way to verse 9. The song of the 24 elders are equally as worshipful but a little bit different. We notice in verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy. Axios. Worthy. That word for when a Roman emperor would march into a city in triumphal procession. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. 
Brothers and sisters, next week in chapter 5, the elders' focus will be on the power of God as revealed in redemption. But here in chapter 4, their focus is on the wonders of creation. God's powers displayed in creation here in this instance provides the basis for his praise. And the fact that they cast their crowns before the Lord shows that all of their own beauty and all of their own excellencies mean nothing to them. As they gladly and joyfully lay it at the feet out of reverence and humility, they direct all of their adoration to the creator and sovereign over all. This is the scene of Revelation 4. Think about how this would have impacted the Apostle John. Everything that he's about to see. And he gets to behold the throne of divine glory. And more importantly, the one who sits permanently fixed on that throne. John, take a deep breath and rest easy. We live in 2021, and we have to ask, how do we live what we learn? Two things this morning, addressed to two very different groups. Church, if all things are governed by the Holy One who sits enthroned in heaven, If this reality is as as fixed and certain as this chapter implies, and it is, what should be the response of us as people? How is John to respond? How is the life of the church to be altered by this unchanging principle? Well, the natural implication flowing out of the reality ought to be very plain to us. The worthy one who occupies the throne is to be trusted and worshipped as he rightfully deserves. I don't know if you entered this morning specifically fretting about anything. You need to hear this morning that all things are governed by the Holy One who sits enthroned in heaven. If you walk away with anything of substance this morning, please let it be this. We have a lot of people today who are either fascinated with heavenly visitations or even worse, are profiting from the false claim that they, ha- they themselves have visited heaven and since returned. And do you know what's strikingly absent from all of their false accounts? It is the terror of God. When Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John were graced with the privilege to peer into heaven, they each shared one thing in common. They were completely terrified by what they saw. So much so that Isaiah was compelled to say, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am ruined. To put this another way, friends, those who catch but a glimpse of the majesty and holiness of God, and I trust you do this morning through today's text, those individuals do the same thing that the 24 elders do here in Revelation 4. They fall on their face before the Lord Almighty. That is the only natural response that one can have when you witness this awe-inspiring glory of God. And still yet, there is another group here this morning. If you're here today and you are not in Christ, you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What I would tell you this morning with all the earnestness in the world is that because of God's grace and mercy, He is presently being patient with you. 
He is presently refraining from worldwide judgment on all sinners. But I would also equally say there is a day day yet determined in the future of which John had the privilege to see in advance that during the time of great tribulation, the opportunity of mercy and grace will be passed. And this sinful, rebellious world in that moment will feel the full, furious wrath of the Lamb of God. So terrifying will that time be that unrepentant sinners in the time of Revelation 6 will literally, John writes in Revelation 6.16, they will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of wrath has come and who is able to stand they will echo what Nebuchadnezzar echoed. Who is able to stand? Here's my encouragement this morning. If you're here today and you think you can hide from him, I would tell you adamantly, hiding from him who sits enthroned is not an option. You can elect to bow the knee today and receive a shelter from that storm that's yet to come, God's wrath against sin, Or you can delay in your own self-worship and thereby elect to bow the knee as you receive his righteous judgment. I would plead with you to choose the former. You will be a part of a crowd that's literally crying for the rocks to fall on you, to spare you from the great day of wrath, the wrath of the Lamb. Today can be the day of salvation. If you'd like to know more how you can be reconciled to this God enthroned, I'm going to be in that back corner. Pretend no one else is here and make a beeline to me this morning. I would be glad to talk with you more about just that. Well, church, it's appropriate that we worship. Amen? It's appropriate that we worship. Amen? If you'll stand to your feet, let's go ahead and bow our head and close our eyes. Let's... Let's transition to do just that in song. Father, we thank you this morning where we've had the privilege of worshiping in and through your word. And now, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to take these voices that come in a vast array of tone and ability makes no difference, Lord. May every bit of fear of man leave this place and may our sole ambition today would be to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. To sing of our God who is a holy, holy, holy God. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.